Well, it doesn't take too long getting through the teenage years to realize that life is very complicated, especially in this day and age. And I've had a number of folks say to me recently, I would just love it if the Lord would just tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'd just love it if you just tell me, like, what am I supposed to do now, today? And I can definitely sympathize. There's something actually really refreshing when you're feeling so perplexed and overwhelmed with all the different things you could do. There's something really refreshing about just having a direct command that says, here, do this. This is the Lord's will right now. Do this. Have you ever wished for that? Of course, if what we want here is for the Lord to map out every little segment of our time, map out the itinerary for every single day, and this sort of very specific, you do this now, and now you do this, and now you do this, we're not going to find that in Scripture. The Lord does want for us to think about what He's spoken and to intelligently align our purposes with His, to intelligently negotiate how to manage our time. But at the same time, the Lord sympathizes with our need, and there is no shortage of clear, concise instruction about how we should be filling our time. As we're entering this final stretch here in Hebrews, this is the the home stretch here for the letter, we're going to see the author giving us these very brief, very concise, very clear and straightforward instructions. And as we're hearing them, we want to hear them as they really ought to be heard, as they really would have come to the original audience. Remember, the, the original audience would be reading the whole letter all at once, hearing it all in one, one fell swoop. And so as we're hearing these instructions, going through the letter as patiently and as slowly as we are going, we don't want to detach them from all the good stuff he's already said, all the glorious gospel goodness that we've already heard in this letter. We want to see all the specific instructions about what we're supposed to be doing as a direct outflow of the great thing God has done in his life. Remember, this is so important. The Bible, first of all, is not a rule book about how we are to be doing things. First of all, it's a book about what God has done. And then out of that comes what we must do. And so we're going to look at the first command given here, this general command to let brotherly love continue, verse 1, and then we're going to look at specific outflows of that brotherly love in verses 2 to 3, specific areas of our life that God claims and says, here's what I want you to do, here's how I want you to spend your time, and then we'll remember at the end how this all comes from faith, which gives us the power to obey. So the first line is, let brotherly love continue, it's a very short verse there, let brotherly love continue. Continue, verse 1. But there is a lot here for us to unpack. First, I hope you caught the encouragement when he says, let brotherly love continue. What is that saying? It's saying that it's already going on. And if we remember earlier in the letter, the author has reminded his listeners of the confidence that he has in them. He says, I'm confident of better things concerning you, things concerning salvation. He remembers how they were willing to part with their worldly goods if it meant being faithful to Jesus in the face of persecution. But he's also writing this letter because he detects their weariness and he detects their struggles 
to persevere, especially as the persecutors seem to be turning up the heat and asking them to give up more. And so he's saying to them, let brotherly love continue. Don't let it stop. And one of the blessings I have standing before you today is that I know you and your good deeds, Covenant Presbyterian Church, I know you're striving after the truth. I know your desire to keep it real and not just say you're a Christian, but to really walk the talk. And so as an ambassador of Jesus, I now say to you, let brotherly love continue. And let's talk about what that looks like. Let brotherly love continue. We need to notice that it's brotherly love. Brotherly love. Now, of course, we all know brothers can squabble. Brothers can have major fallings out. But it's also true that in Scripture, the love of brothers is upheld as this paradigm for godly love. At their best, brothers stick together, even when things are really tough. Proverbs 18.24, he talks about there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, you want to talk about somebody sticking close, it's going to be a brother. You know that your brother has your back, even when you've made a mess of things. They're not going to abandon you, no. They're going to keep looking after you and keep with you as a brother. At their best, brothers are also affectionate. A brother is someone who's glad to see you, and you know it. There's that joy in being together, that familiarity. At their best, brothers are sacrificial. A brother will give you his shirt off his back. That's what you just have to, that's what you have to, you just have to ask and they'll do it. And so it's this kind of family love that's behind God in the scriptures calling us as Christians, brothers and sisters, as siblings in the church of Jesus Christ. You realize this is what Jesus produces when he saves us. He creates in us this brotherly identity, this sibling identity with each other. Remember Hebrews 2.10? It talks about God in bringing many sons to glory. That means all of us, male and female alike, are children of God. We are those whom God is bringing to glory as sons. And then it follows up, Hebrews 2.11, it says, Jesus is not afraid or ashamed to call us brothers. So we are brothers with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the Lord Jesus Christ's closest kin. And he has created in us this love that he himself has for us. He loves us the way a brother loves. In fact, he's our great older brother. who's always willing to reach down and pull us out of a tough spot. And so he's saying, look, you guys are family, the family of God, so act like one. Act like a family. Don't don't stop the good brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. And, And then I just want us to focus now on this idea, continue. Let brotherly love, that kind of familial love, let it continue. And if you search for this word continue through the letter of the Hebrews, it's really amazing how this word comes up. Because this letter is really all about things that continue, things that remain. Think about the new covenant. That's a covenant that remains, unlike the old covenant that's shadowy, that passes away. Think about 
the heavenly Mount Zion. This is the dwelling place of God and of us that remains, not like that shadowy Jerusalem that was just a picture. Think about Jesus himself. He continues, it says, same word, as our great high priest forever, 724. The heavens and the earth, verses 1 through 11, chapter 1, verses 11 through 12 says, the heavens and the earth will perish, but you, O Lord, continue or remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. God continues forever, and we hear later in this chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He continues forever, and he produces this everlasting kingdom that will not be shaken. We heard about that last time. And what is, what is he saying? Let brotherly love continue. What's part of that permanent kingdom that God has produced through the work of his son, Jesus? Our brotherly love. This family of God is an eternal reality. And the love that we have for each other today that must continue, that must grow, is part of that everlasting reality that will never, ever pass away. You think about Jesus. He's the older brother whose love for us never flickers, never grows old, never wears out. He puts that love in us. He enables us to persevere in love for each other. And so, we the people of God, our love for each other is an everlasting, continuing reality. It's part of this great everlasting kingdom. Let it continue. Let it grow. So let's talk about specifically what that looks like. Okay, I want to be part of this continuing brotherly love. What's involved? Get specific, please. Okay. Verses 2 through 3 will give us some of the specifics. We're going to see a whole bunch more the rest of the chapter. But here's a couple of things this looks like. First, in verse 2, there's a regard for strangers. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And again, how we define word is going to really make or break whether we get what he's talking about. What does hospitality mean? Show hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect this. We must not think of what we often think of with hospitality, which is having a bunch of friends or family over for a nice meal. That's great. That's fun. That's delightful. That's not wrong, certainly. But it's not actually what he's talking about. Hospitality, biblical hospitality, is about service. It's about having people into your home, having people over, not based on how much fun you're going to have necessarily, or what they will do for you, but on how you can bless them. So Jesus, in Luke 14, 12 to 14, he says, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. As one person wrote, reflecting on this text, God's guest list includes a disconcerting number of poor and broken people, those who appear to bring little to any gathering except their their need. Another person writes this, hospitality, biblical hospitality, renders our houses as hospitals and incubators. 
Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Essential to hospitality is the open heart, which results in an open house. That's what he's talking about when he says, don't neglect this. It's that service-oriented, giving kind of hospitality. Now let's talk about strangers. It says, don't show hospitality to, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Stranger doesn't necessarily mean someone whom I've never met and I have no clue who they are. Can mean that. But very often it means friends or neighbors or coworkers who are maybe rough around the edges, people who don't know Jesus yet, people who maybe I don't really know very well at school or at work, and whenever I do see them, they always seem really distant, not the life of the party kind of people, would you be willing to have them into your homes? Would you be willing to welcome them into your life? I just want to encourage you, God uses this in unbelievable ways. Rosaria Butterfield said about herself when she was a radically anti-Christian anti-Christian lesbian college professor. She said, long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home, this pastor who led her to Christ, the Smith home was where was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. You see, our homes can be that first link between a lost soul and the Savior, somebody who would never enter a church may be willing to enter your home. Another one, a Brazilian Marxist anti-Christian intellectual talks about the first time he was welcomed to a Christian couple's home. Remember the first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? When I realized that the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. What happened? This guy, they just invited him in. Hey, you want to have dinner? It was nothing special, just you know, a bowl of soup, that, what they happened to have on the... On the, on the stove that day, what happened? They weren't trying to, like, lay heavy on him, you know, preaching at him or whatever. They're just, they're just living, loving each other, being Christians, being who they are. And he realizes, wow, I need Jesus. God used it. And so to motivate us in this calling to radically service-oriented hospitality, the author of Hebrews says that by showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained angels unawares. Angels. That makes us think of Abraham in Genesis 18, these angels, one of whom turns out to be the angel of the Lord, the, seems like the pre-incarnate Christ here coming, having a meal with Abraham, and there's other two angels who are with him. He didn't realize it. They looked like men. But he entertained royalty that day simply by being a host to strangers. You never know whom you are welcoming into your home when you welcome in that rough-edged person. Isn't it amazing what we just heard in Matthew 25, 35? You actually could very well be welcoming in Jesus himself. 
I was a stranger. There's that word. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Lord, when did we ever welcome you? When you welcomed the least of these, my brethren, you welcomed me. Would you like to have the Lord Jesus come to visit? (laughs) Would you like the honor of having him at your table? I hope you would. All you have to do is entertain strangers and show them the love of Christ. Now, all this is probably raising alarm bells in your minds, like boundaries, like, hey, this doesn't sound safe. I'm concerned for the safety of my family or for my home. I'm concerned that I don't have the bandwidth for this. I'm concerned I just don't have a place for something like this. And for all of this, I direct you to a hospitality Sunday school class I did, (laughs) available online. And the point is this. Yes, those are all good, important, practical concerns. Are there answers for those concerns? Yes, there are. Does the Bible help you with all these things? Of course it does. But I'm asking today a much more fundamental question. Are you even, is this even on your radar? Is this something that you are actively seeking? Because if you're actively seeking it, you can overcome the obstacles. Are you seeking to make this your way? A Christian home should be an open home, a welcoming home. And I hope you realize this is about a posture. It's not just about like our homes necessarily, although it involves that. It's also about just having an inclusive posture wherever you go. So teens, when you get together, maybe not at your home, but like just going out someplace, do you invite only your friends, the people that you feel like will make you feel good? together? Or do you invite those other people that you don't know terribly well, people who are on the fringes of your communities, and then welcoming them into your friendship? That's, that's what he's talking about here. That's when, you know, when you invited me out to do that thing, and you showed me that love, and included me with you guys, Jesus says, then you included me, and you welcomed me. So here at church, Imagine this church as continuing in brotherly love. And one way in which we're continuing is we are continuing to be as welcoming as we possibly can to anybody who walks through this door. No matter who they are, they receive a warm welcome. Hi, my name's so-and-so. Welcome. Glad you're here. Welcome the stranger. And verse 3, remember those who are in prison. And that's joined very closely to remember those who are afflicted in the general sense. And in both cases, it says we are to put ourselves in their shoes. Remember those in prison. Remember those who are afflicted. Remember those who are in prison as if we were in prison with them. Remember those who are afflicted because we also are in the body. In other words, we're also subject to afflictions too. We also can sympathize with what it must be like to be locked away or just simply physically out of it and not able to move around or come play, go places. And in both cases, we're talking about those very likely who are Christians who have been wrongfully imprisoned because of their faith or perhaps are beaten down and afflicted in body because of their faith. And the point is, remember them. When one part of our body hurts, The rest of us should feel the pain. We should sympathize with the pain. We're connected to them. Uh, My family and I are reading the story of Brother Andrew, the Bible smuggler who traveled to communist countries bringing Bibles past the Iron Curtain. Uh, It was back in the 1900s. 
And he was often going to these churches where they had, you know, never for decades seen another Christian from the outside world. And they're just so like, whoa, thank you so much for simply being here. And they're just, they're just so blessed simply by his presence there. And they say very often to him this message, tell the outside church of our sufferings. Tell them of our sufferings, because when the rest of the body is sympathizing, when the rest of the body is feeling our pain with us and praying for us, then we are strengthened. The author of Hebrews wants us not to neglect those who seem locked away, alone. They need Christ's love to see that love in us. And so one of the things we have to be busy about, you want, you want something on your to-do list that's from the Lord. The Lord put this on your to-do list. It is finding those brothers and sisters who are suffering alone. Find them and then do everything you can to show them that they're not forgotten. So are they in prison? I think we know some people in prison now. Go and visit them. Write them a letter. Share the love of Christ with them. Are they shut in their homes or a nursing home because of a debilitating disease or some kind of injury? Well, encourage them with a call or a visit or a card. Are they people we've never met in a country that's far, far away and they're suffering under persecution and tyranny? Then what do we do? We show the love of Christ as best we can through gifts or notes, whatever we can do, perhaps through our missionaries. I, I heard one family, uh, one of my friends back in PhD days, who said that for vacation this year, we're going to go to Rwanda on a family mission trip. And what were they doing? Visiting afflicted brothers and sisters, serving, showing the love of Christ. That was their vacation. And they loved it. It was an awesome time. Wherever these lonely Christians are, we are one body with them. If they suffer, we suffer. And so we need to find them. We need to purposely go out, find them, and then be with them. Be present with them. And very often, as they'll tell you, anybody who's been in this situation, they'll just tell you, simply the fact that you were here, that's all you needed to do. You know, just simply being here, listening to me, sharing a few stories with me, maybe playing cards together, just any kind of, you know, mundane activity. What matters is your presence the visible sign of your love. Your loving presence will be an incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. So I want to ask you this fundamental question. Do you have empathy for believers in hard places? Lonely believers? Do you care about their plight? Is caring for lonely believers in their plight part of the web of what you think about? This is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I hope so. Now, to return to the beginning, this is our third point. It's not enough to say to you, now do this. That would really not be faithful to what the author of Hebrews is doing in this letter. (laughs) Like, you can't just lift these verses out and just talk about these things. No, all these things I'm describing, the servant-oriented hospitality, welcoming those we don't know very well or are different from us into our lives, going out, visiting those who are stuck in some way. Maybe it's just hitting you right now, like, wow, these are, not, these are not priorities in my life. Like, this, 
those things, they have, they have like 0% of my bandwidth right now. Like I, just, I, don't, I don't do any of those things. And then you start thinking of all the challenges of like, okay, how am I going to do this? Man, I'm tired. I'm afraid of what harm might come to me. I'm afraid of loss. I'm afraid of awkward conversations. I'm afraid I won't have fun anymore if I start really dedicating myself to this. And those are understandable feelings. But here's two things I want to say in response to this in light of the letter as a whole. First is this. Part of why you may be feeling this way is because you need to give up things in order to make room for these things. You need to look through your life rhythm. You need to look for those kind of fun, optional things and say, you know, am I willing to give up this for the sake of being faithful to this, which God requires? Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality. Remember those in prison or who are afflicted. I can assure you there are no alternative Greek texts no, no other variants of this that say, if you're really rich, or if you have a really nice place, or if you have lots of free time, or if you're not feeling exhausted. It's just there. This is the Christian way. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These are essential aspects to what it means to represent Jesus in the world. So you have to make some cuts on, essential, on non-essential things to do the essential things. And you must make those cuts. Those those things need to go on the side that need to go to make room for these things. So some of these things, part of why we're feeling overwhelmed as we think of them is, well, yeah, you you can't have both this really fun thing that you really like to do all the time that's consuming tons of your time and this. So you have to give it up. That's the first thing. But remember, second, this. Remember the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Remember everything that this letter has told us. He's our great high priest. What does that mean? One of the things that means is he's praying for you right now, that you would be able to keep his commands. What does it mean that he's our great high priest? It means we get to go to him in our weakness. And he even tells us, Hebrews 4.16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. You're thinking to yourself, I need help to do these commands. Perfect. Go to the throne of grace. You will find grace for your time of need. Let's say you're too busy and you lack wisdom for how to make time for this kind of love. Okay. Ask Jesus for wisdom. Let's say you're too overwrought and exhausted with other good things like caring for your kids or sick family or you feel it's impossible to do what this text is asking you to do. Okay. Ask Jesus for how you can still honor the spirit of this text, even if its application may be broader than the very specific things here. Let's say you're socially awkward and you lack courage or even just the know-how to talk to new people. Okay, ask Jesus for courage. Let's say you're too financially strapped to feed others in addition to your family. Okay, ask Jesus for the funds. Let's say you're, in all honesty, too lazy and too addicted to entertainment to think about going outside of your comfort zone to visit anybody. It's just too big of an ask. It's just no. Okay. Ask Jesus for the power to obey. Ask Jesus for the gift 
of zeal. And I declare to you on the authority of King Jesus that you will find grace to help in your time of need, that the Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never lack for the Lord's supply. Let's pray. Our Lord, we often have asked, or at least thought in our minds, Lord, I wish you would just tell me what to do. Well, Lord, you have told us what to do. And we thank you for these gracious words, that it's not just that you've given us these commands, but you've also given us what you have commanded. You've given us the grace to respond. And so we pray, as those who are not too impoverished to keep these words, that you would give us the courage and the faith to keep these words as you would have us do in this place where you have us, in this phase of life where we now live. Help us to not shy away when we have this teachable moment when you brought us low. Help us not to harden our hearts against your word, but to take this rare privilege, this wonderful privilege of being called to a higher way and actually seizing it in faith with a new life and a new way of living that is outward focused and filled with love. And Lord, trusting that this won't leave us empty, but instead it will be a great joy that Lord, we might be your agents in seeing brotherly love continue. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.